0: Welcome to the second episode of the Hydrogen and Electric Power Podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Alfred. joining me today is Christina McChesney and Melissa Chan. And today we will be talking about electricity.
1: Thank you for the introduction, Joe. Melissa is a principal of Candrel, an advisory that provides market and technology strategy. She has 20 years of experience in infrastructure development, starting at the Department of Energy, where Melissa supported first-of-a-kind, Power plant demonstrations. She went on to work at Navigant, designing and evaluating smart grid pilots for utilities. And more recently, she has worked as an independent consultant, advising companies on their energy transition. Thanks for being with us, Melissa. Joe has the first question for you.
0: Melissa, thank you for being on the show. Today, we're talking about a subject that you know quite a bit about electricity distribution. What are the current challenges for electricity distribution in relation to zero emission recharging of electric battery cars?
2: Well, Joe, that's a go big or go home on our first question. Thank you for having me on the show. And I'm very much looking forward to engaging conversation with you and Christina. To your question about current challenges for electricity distribution and charging of electric battery cars. perhaps to provide some context and step back and think about the challenges for electricity distribution as society is thinking about shifting towards a net zero energy future lower carbon emissions there's a move to electrify and be more energy efficient shift away from gasoline natural gas oil and all these other energy carriers or fuels to electricity so that you would have no emissions in your endpoint whether it's for home heating or any other use for fossil fuels. So big challenge right now in infrastructure is to think about how to, in the face of increasing our electricity demand for so many services, including electric cars, is how to have enough capacity to fill those demands and deliver that electricity to all the places that it's needed. Specifically for cars, and this is not necessarily in thinking about fleets or other transportation, but for the cars themselves, if we think about individual homeowners charging at home or refueling for the folks who don't have charging at home. This is going to increase the need for electricity in so many areas, especially in residential neighborhoods and office spaces or retail parking lots and parking garages. It's going to be a real need to consider how we build out this infrastructure so that we can be sure to have the power supply where we need it, when we want it.
0: That is a incredible challenge. And and with my position on the Zevik Council in Maryland, we go through some of these issues on a monthly basis in terms of reviewing within specific projects, whether that be at a public location, semi-private, multi-family, how are we going to deliver that electricity and how are we going to interact with that last stage electric charging of the vehicle? So if I've heard from webinars and other people in the industry that our grid system is not currently set up to accept power from renewable energy sources such as solar and wind, and that the grid is not set up to go both ways. And that the process to do so is time consuming. So, what are the areas of backlog which caused this delay?
2: Okay, so we're thinking about um, like behind the meter distributed energy resources, say a household scale or a small business scale. Correct. And, you know, for the last 25 years or so, I think starting with the Clinton administration, there's been actually a lot of incentive and um, desire to have these types of resources because we recognize the need to reduce our carbon emissions. Um, And so many states have created um, policies called net metering, which actually encourage production of power from behind the meter and then accounting on your electric bill through net metering to account for the power that you generated and provided back into the grid. I think something that people might overlook is, you know, the, the technology has evolved over time. So for those early systems that were set up, say, you know, you may very well know an early adopter who got that first set of solar panels installed in their house in the 90s. Um, the panels would feed right into the grid. Um, and then about 10 years later with Superstorm Sandy, there was a realization that there needs to be um, more flexible use of that power, not to say feed all into the grid. and. What actually happened during Superstorm Sandy all throughout Long Island is people had solar panels on their roofs that were producing power, but because the power was feeding into the grid, the homeowners were actually experiencing a power outage. And this led to the realization that we need to have smart inverters that can flip both ways, providing power in the house, and providing power to the grid. And so I think this lays the groundwork for exactly what you're describing, which is the flexibility of battery electric vehicles to accept power from the grid or discharge it back, or even what we call vehicle-to-building, discharging it to the building. Um, There's a lot of interest and activity in this space. Um, A lot of startups that are focusing on it know um, weave Grid, Fermata Energy, or some early-stage startups that people have been pointing to that have developed um, applications for battery electric vehicle owners to reduce the, the cost of ownership of these vehicles by providing power back to, to the grid.
0: Absolutely. That, that is exactly what I was going to the discussion towards because that is going to really define the balancing act between having too much supply and having too much demand for the grid at any one time and having the ability to have mobile energy storage applications with that with that inverter has a lot of great uh, utilization tactics that both utilities as well as regular consumers can interact with the grid system and we can more effectively utilize the electricity that we do generate on a day-to-day basis.
1: Joe, I actually have the next question for you. The transition from fossil fuels for electricity generation and transmission will define the rest of this century. Do you think venture capital firms, companies, and family offices are doing enough to facilitate this transition?
0: So that's a really great question and very well phrased. Uh, I I would think that it it really depends uh, on the particular venture capital uh, company and the family office uh, in that they have predetermined guesses and bets in the market. They, They think that the market is gonna go in a certain way and they're putting their money into that that placement. And they certainly already have investments that they've made in the past, which they'd like to double down on, that they don't want to cede over a a certain amount of capital to this new venture that just comes along. It's this new idea, this new way of doing things. Even if it might be proven to be more efficient, there's a certain sunk cost that these companies have already placed that they don't want to surrender their their financial capital that they've already expended. So it really is a difficult question to ask because you're gonna get a different answer from everybody because everybody really has a different answer for where the market is gonna go eventually. And there are going to be winners and there are gonna be losers. And there's going to be a time period in which we get to talk about that. Uh, For example, the vast majority of the market currently in terms of transportation runs on gasoline and diesel. So they have been the winners for a very, very long time. And it's very well established that they're the winners. But in this period of transition, it's not yet determined who's going to be the winner. So the answer really is, Uh, It depends on on who you ask. Melissa, your dissertation explored the assumptions uh, behind the 250-year timeline for coal production and utilization with thermal power plants. As costs rise from both extraction and environmental concerns, do we yet have a winning strategy for shifting our electricity production to cheaper zero emission solutions?
2: Well, Joe, um, first... Let me thank you for looking into my PhD dissertation from over 10 years ago. Um, I remember that my advisor was saying, maybe somebody will look at this. You should stick a $20 bill in your publication in 10 years, because if it's gone, someone has read it. Um, but to, to your point, you're just saying that we, we don't have insight into winners and losers or the ability to you know really predict the future. Um, to provide listeners a little bit of context around my dissertation research, I was returning to school after working for several years for the Department of Energy on carbon capture and storage. And um, this was back when, if you were interested in climate change research, really, um, The only game in town was looking at carbon and capture from coal. And it's nice in 2021 to look back and say, oh, well, it looks like coal is no longer economically feasible. But at the time, um, research really seemed to be all in on coal. Like we hadn't hit the price parity at solar and energy storage that we're enjoying today. And so my research as a doctoral student was looking at if we commit to this future of continuing to use coal, but capture and store the carbon emissions that are coming off, well then that coal has to come from somewhere. And so I did an analysis that projected that in the United States, we had about 250 years worth of coal if we continued to use it in the fashion of generating power and capturing the carbon and storing it. And of course, at that time, there is no way to know that eventually we would move towards an electrified future that we're all very excited about at this time. Um, What I focused on was if that coal is gonna be continued to be extracted What are the, um, not just the engineered cost, but the human and social costs of extracting this coal? And um, I came to a conclusion that I'm sure nobody will be surprised about, that it is a very expensive fuel when you consider the human and social cost of extraction. You consider you know, strip mining all through Appalachia or the disruption of beautiful land in Wyoming. I think In 2021, looking back at this research from 2008, it is interesting in hindsight to see how things have played out and that we're still trying to figure out the transition in a way. Like we all agree that coal is not the fuel. However, with the the human and social aspect, we are still trying to figure out how to bring meaningful jobs to areas that have been deeply affected by coal mining. Um, We haven't sorted that aspect out. We're still trying to figure out what are the right technologies to get us where we want to be. And perhaps we have ruled out continuing to use coal and capturing the carbon dioxide and sequestering it. However, I think through all of our research and you know, the national labs leading the way and now many um, university laboratories and startups sharing the effort in researching carbon capture and storage options, um, we may see some aspects of no previous research coming to bear today. Um, I was I was just listening to the New York Times Daily podcast today, and they were discussing, um, or actually I think I just mixed up, mixed up a bunch of podcasts listening to, but I was listening to somebody say that the Biden administration is very much interested in carbon capture and storage. And this is, I think, an exciting opportunity. Um, for that technology to make a big difference in industrial emissions and plausibly in reducing our ambient emissions as well, um, depending how far we get in field deployment of this technology. So all of that to say, it can take a long time for us to see who the winners and losers are. Um, Infrastructure it takes a long time to develop and, you know, our understanding of how technology will perform in the real world it takes a long time, um, a long time of testing and piloting and understanding its continuous operations under different conditions.
0: I think that was a fantastic answer, one, because it really showcases how difficult it really is to gauge Such a complex question. And it really may take a lifetime to study whether or not we've hit a successful trajectory in in where we are taking our energy future. So thank you. Christina, as a computer scientist who needs electricity to function in the workspace every single day, how critical is it for you to have access to low cost electricity sources And do you believe that the current framework allows you to have that access?
1: Absolutely. Have I ever mentioned that I love to travel?
2: Maybe a few times.
1: Yes, a few times. My husband and I spent six months in Beirut, Lebanon in 2019. Lebanon imports most of its energy from other countries. And with current events, the electricity is becoming more expensive. Because of that, this beautiful country suffers from frequent power cuts every day for several hours, which obviously prevented me from getting much work done. Also, because they can't keep the electricity connected 24-7, it's extremely difficult for Lebanon to keep high-speed internet up and running. It's also hard to give customers enough bandwidth without paying through the roof for it. So this meant that using the cloud, downloading anything or upgrading the software wasn't really possible for me. I knew a lot of professionals working in Lebanon had a lot of issues with electricity and internet connectivity. Obviously not having proper access to electricity is a huge impediment to tech professionals. Coming to our next question. Joe, a recent house bill in Maryland passed the following. And I'm gonna quote this here. For the purpose of requiring a builder of certain new housing units or a builder's agent to provide each buyer or prospective buyer with the option to include on or in a certain garage, carport or driveway A certain electric vehicle charging station or dedicated electric line with certain voltage under certain circumstances. Requiring a certain builder or builder's agent to give to certain buyers and prospective buyers notice of certain options and information about certain rebate programs under certain circumstances. Providing for the applications of this act, defining certain terms and generally relating to electric vehicle charging and new residential construction. My question is, what would be the most appropriate distribution channel for builders and their agents to provide to buyers?
0: So when I was coming up with uh, an answer for this uh, question, I had a couple of different models that that the buyers could utilize um, because it really isn't spelled out in the legislation how builders are required to inform buyers uh, about their choices. So this can really take the form in in a lot of different ways. Um, You know, builders interact with with potential uh, buyers of homes in, you know, potential leaflet campaigns in terms of the what is it going to be included within that particular new construction piece another possible way is to have a, a meeting uh, for potential uh, buyers who are interested in that uh, in that property and then they could have you know a slideshow included within uh, this information but the, the fact that the the legislation itself doesn't really spell out how the builders are going to inform the buyers about this, it really gives the the, the builders a, a lot of leeway in, in what is compliance with this law. So uh, there needs to be a little bit more of how this legislation should, should be enforced in the future. And that's, that's part of what we uh, are discussing at the council. So, Melissa, thank you so much for your time today. The last question is going to be yours. If you were in charge of energy policy, and I know this is a very large question, what changes would you make to our grid and transportation networks to make them more sustainable?
2: Oh, my goodness, Joe. Okay, so where to start? And <laughs> um, probably a topic of conversation for future episode, but um, I... I think there's a couple pieces here, you know, three aspects to go down. Um, One being the policy around infrastructure development, operations, and then the incentives for how infrastructure is procured and energy is procured because energy is what is created by the infrastructure, but, you know, that's the service that we want and how infrastructure is operated. Um, there's another embedded question there around the operation of our existing networks and um, upgrading to the networks that we want in the future and then I guess the third aspect is the sustainability question but for the purposes of keeping things short and sweet today uh, I will focus on the policy aspect and how do we create the incentives for the change that we want to see. And um, my opinion is that this is gonna take some time and a lot of conversations because something that I think the majority of us value is transparency and um, due process to be sure that our policymakers and regulators are making the best decisions on our behalf because all of us are ratepayers paying for electricity and infrastructure. And so you know, we want to be sure that that money is spent in our best interest maximizing benefits. So a few things to consider here are, I, I think there will need to be a great deal of reform in the thinking about how utilities and other infrastructure developers, and by other infrastructure developers, that's a very loose term, because we're still seeing infrastructure as a service emerging, Um, but perhaps we should focus more on utilities because they are right now um, the regulated monopoly around procuring and developing, operating this infrastructure on the behalf of all of us. Where, you know, before we started recording, Christina, about um, this exciting time where everything is getting digitized and almost everything can be something as a service. But utilities are still incentivized to make money by spending money, which is they guaranteed a return on capital expenditure. However, something as a service, which is what the rest of the world is moving towards, for example, cloud service, um, cloud computing as a service, um, that doesn't really fit in this model because it's operations. And so this will take a lot of time and a lot of thought for utilities and the regulators to think about in a world where we recognize that operational costs are going to go up if we consider X as a service, um, how can we ensure that the utilities who are providing the services for all of us can continue to um, recover their costs. There there must be a creative way to think about that. And along those lines, in thinking about creative financing and accounting, I, I realized that there have been a lot of steps in this direction. For example, with the FERC issuing the orders to the regional transmission markets to tell them to think about how energy storage and um, DER aggregators fit into the market as a whole to provide not just capacity or demand response, but ancillary services. How do these new technologies fit all throughout the value stack? I recognize that there's going to be a lot of creative solutions to fulfill those orders, Um, but we may find that as we learn how technology works and how the types of incentives that we're testing out at this time really work in the real world, that we may need to revisit the design of those incentives to be sure that they're playing out in the way that we want to see. So, you know, really exciting time. Um, We're going to see a lot of creative technology solutions in response to policy, but I also think we're going to see some very interesting policy designs in response to where the technology is taking us.
0: Thanks so much for your answer. I think it is an exciting time and politically speaking as well as technologically speaking, we don't really know the future. And that is because it really can depend on one person and whether or not they can want to move forward in a certain direction. just in terms of legislatively on the federal level. But we have to make do with uh, what we have, and there are always going to be new and interesting projects that departments like uh, the Department of Energy put out for uh, potential resources that startups like myself uh, can utilize. So we must adapt and attempt to thrive within the marketplace in which we are we find ourselves in so exciting times all around
1: exciting times indeed thank you joe thank you very much melissa for joining us today on the podcast that all the time we have for today
2: thank you very much christina and joe for having me this is this is fun
0: thank you melissa and christina for another really great episode we covered a lot of topics today, all the way from coal generation and how long really our coal is going to last us for electricity generation to you know issues in regards to the Maryland legislature and how we can better inform consumers about their choices in regards to electric battery chargers. This has been another great episode of the Hydrogen Electric Power podcast. We hope that you continue listening. And this has been Joseph Balford and Christina McChesney.